Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the CollectingCast.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Sadly, Edward Lovett cannot be with us today, um, but that means he's probably doing something like selling a Carrera GT. But I'm here with my very old pal, Colin Goodwin, motoring journalist, uh, pilot and many other things you're about to find out. Now, Col, what's your tag on Twitter? I haven't got one. That tells you all you need to know about Colin Goodwin. Now, uh, Cole uh, is a motoring journalist written for pretty much every major car magazine in the UK um, and um, and was also a senior figure when I got towards a car. So he still views me as the T-boy, as many people do. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now we're going to talk about We are currently sitting in the back of an Audi A8 long wheelbase, the new one, at White Waltham Flying Club, which is your sort of second home now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm um, self-isolating here now, actually. Um, tell us about the aeroplane, because before we get onto cars with you, what you need to know about Colin is he's someone who, who when he decides he's going to do something, commits 130% doing it, which meant that when he was rebuilding an El Camino about 15, 20 years ago, um, we all got involved at Autocar, and it was a, you know a committed phase of his life, but he decided once that was done that he did a new challenge. So he built an aeroplane in his backyard. Uh, yeah, I'd... Um... I'd been to this flying show and I saw this amazing looking aeroplane. I didn't know the first thing about aeroplanes. Take me to Goodwood, I pretty much know where I am. Aeroplanes, hadn't a clue what was what. And I saw this fantastic looking aeroplane, went and asked someone what it was and they told me it was a kit. I can't build an aeroplane out of a kit. <laughs> um, apparently you can. So um, uh, I, I bought, you could buy it in bits, so I bought the back end and built that and then just carried on. You built a shed in your back garden, which is in near Hampton, isn't it? Yeah. So so how big is your garden? Uh, not very big. It's uh, it's a terraced house and it's in between uh, many other terraced houses. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. I thought I'll worry about that when I get to it. So you built the back of it and then you built the front of it. 
yeah, you do the back and then the wings and you stash. So that's really easy. They went out the front door of the house. Then you build the fuselage. That's not so easy. It's also quite long. And, um, and once you've hung an engine off it and other bits and pieces, it gets quite heavy. So how did you get it? How did you extract it from where it was? It was a shed. You built a shed, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I had, to, well, I had a small tool shed, but I knocked that down and built uh, a proper shed. Well, not enormous, but uh, a bigger shed. And, um, yeah, built the um, fuselage in that. And uh, one day we were having a tree chopped down, which we did with some neighbours. We all put some money in and got this tree cut down. And they did it with this damn great crane. And I was looking out my window watching them do it, and I thought, blimey, you could lift an aeroplane up like that. <laughs> So I, I then I relaxed, and when I finished it, I just hired this 90-ton crane, and it lobbed it over three gardens into the back of a truck, and then they took it off to um, an airfield where I put it all together. How long did it take start to finish? Five years. Best thing you've ever done? Yeah. You I'd love it, don't so. you? Yeah, it's magic. And so, in some respects, I've watched Colin progress with his his aeronautical exploits, and I've been very jealous because I think in some respects the way that you're, you operate with aircraft is how people used to operate with cars in terms of a hobby because you've now got the freedom to go and do what you want to do. Legislation doesn't seem to be stopping you doing it. You're with like-minded people. You can go and where, you can always go to somewhere where there's someone else to chat to about your hobby, can't you? Yeah, totally. I think what it's done is it's given me a, a freedom in that, has sort of gone from driving, really. Yeah. If you ask me the question, do I prefer cars or planes? It's cars. A more difficult question would be, do I prefer driving or flying? And unfortunately, the honest answer is I prefer flying. Well, um, I, I took me a while to go up in a plane with Colin. That's another story we'll tell later on. Um, as ever, my first flight was never going to be straightforward, was it? And it certainly wasn't. So we'll have a chat about that in a minute. But um, let's go back to the beginning. So, see Goodwin. Um, I presume, um, let's start with, not, not too young, let's start with you excelling academically in your teens and about to get to the age of having either a motorcycle licence or a car licence. What, what were you doing? Where were you? Uh, I've got four O-levels. Have you? Yeah. Uh, I. Uh, You've never displayed any, any tales of that actually being the case? No, I... Um, I got two in one go. Did you? Yeah, I failed maths because I was 25 miles away trying to get a Honda, a Yamaha 125 to start because I didn't know about a main tank and a reserve tank, yeah. the tap. And I, I can't remember the, who lent it to me, but I, I borrowed an RD 125 on the morning of doing maths O-level, went about 20 miles away to Guildford from school, and it just stopped. And it took me half an hour to realise there was a reserve tap. Anyway, when I got back, math, math O-level was half done, so I failed that. Um, I got both Englishes, fortunately. And then um, then I went to a crammer and uh, cheated at economics and got maths. So, yeah, I've got four. Now I left school at 16, uh, worked on a farm for a bit, and then um, drove forklift trucks. 
And then I was an estate agent for three years, which I would really rather not talk about. Sorry, you were an estate agent for three years. I've known you a long time. We never talked about your estate agent phase. It's what not did you do? To, did you wear a sharp suit, pointy shoes? Cheap suit. <laughs> very cheap suit. But um, I can imagine the sense of passion you'd have shared with prospective buyers as you walk around going, it's got a toilet and a roof. It was pretty poor. The only saving thing was it was a proper spivvy business back then. No idiots in in minis with racing numbers on the side. They were proper. One of the local estate agents was uh, run by a bloke, had loads of gold rings and a 512 boxer. <laughs> proper job. I mean, you know you're going to get ripped off if uh, a bloke in a boxer turns up with gold rings. Any, it's difficult to judge when everyone's in a mini. The only commentary I've ever heard you give on property was when I... Just after I'd first met you, and I think you were recently divorced and probably trying to sort out your life, and assets had been distributed, and you'd decided to buy a Formula Ford, and um, someone was trying to persuade you to buy a flat, and you turned around in the office and said, what, what use is a flat? In what category can you race a flat? It wasn't, a, no, it's not quite true. It wasn't a Formula Ford. What was it? It was a Formula 5000. Formula 5000. <laughs> what was it? Formula Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. So, so you're so you you've done three years of estate agency. That's clearly not your vocation yeah. in life. Where where'd you go after that? Uh, then I was a uh, motorbike courier yeah. for about three years. So this this is important, isn't it? Motorbike courier. You talk about this quite a lot. Oh, it's fantastic. Just um, yeah, really bohemian way of life. Um, yeah, just great fun. Lot fantastically interesting people. Loads of misfits. We had a couple of junkies working at uh, our company. In fact, it was the same company that Damon Hill worked for. Sadly, not when I was there, about a year before. But we used to have these two Irish kids who were proper heroin addicts. And they'd work Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, get enough money, and then buy some smack. You wouldn't see them for days. And then next Monday, they'd come in looking absolutely dreadful. And... um, and then they're carrying on. It was out-of-work actors. Some bloke who used to play drums for Bob Marley. It was bloody brilliant. But you, you, you basically spent your whole time on two wheels and that generated some skills on a bike, didn't it? It must have done. Because, um, yeah, we used to... The speeds we used to go around... It was a highly competitive business. Not just for, not really for the money, but for the, for the challenges. You know, if someone say... I I got to Heathrow in 16 minutes the other day, and you think, right, okay, let's see what we can do about that. Did you fall off? Uh, All the time. So why aren't you limping? I was bounced then, I was younger. (laughs) But you never had a serious, serious off? No, no. Yeah, but always coming off. Were you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose back then... I'm a, I'm a new motorcycle. I'm one of those lightweight, fair-weather ones. I tend not to go out when the weather's terrible. I've only been biking for five or six years or riding a bike. But, of course, I'm used to modern tyres and, and and safety systems and electronic systems on the bike. So so when I ride along, I mean, I don't touch drainage covers, but white lines don't present too much of a problem. But back then, I mean, you were really navigating every, every kind of problem, weren't you? You are anything like... Uh, even in the dry, white lines and... Manhole covers weren't brilliant, but if it was raining, they just skidded a lot. Diesel? Yeah, awful. <laughs> but And then in the winter as well, in the snow and ice, you can't stop because you're trying to earn money. I fell off eight times once going from Oxford to Guildford. <laughs> what, in one journey? Yeah. <laughs> Snowing. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, what, 
when and why did you decide that it might be a good idea to try and write about cars? Um, well, I was. Um, I met my first wife, and uh, we went backpacking around the world for a year. lived in the back of, lived in a um, split screen Volkswagen for a year in Australia. Came back, and I thought, I'm going to have to. Well, I didn't think she told me. Um, I'm going to have to grow up a bit and actually have a career, which I hated the idea. I'd always avoided that, and uh, I thought I've got to. I can't be an estate agent again or, or drive forklift trucks. And actually, when I came back, I did start riding the bikes again, and I did sixty-five thousand miles in one year. And uh, I thought I'll be killed doing this. There's no question. S- several people were, who I worked with. Um, so I thought I've got to be grown up, I've got to face it. And I thought, I've got to do something that's fun this time, that'll last. And I, th- I thought it's got to be cars, I'm sick of bikes. And um, I've always loved cars as well, obviously. But um, yeah, I've got to work with cars. I don't want to sell them because that'll be like being an estate agent. And I'm too old to start being a mechanic, although I would probably enjoy it. And I was looking through the Surrey advertiser and Bell and Colville were advertising for a service manager. I thought, well, that would be good. Fettle, you know, fiddling around with the speed turbos. So I um, applied, and not surprisingly, I didn't get an interview. But I rang um, Bobby Bell up and said, look, I'm nearly 25, I'm slightly in the shit here. Can you just explain to me why you didn't give me an interview? And he said, well, you're sort of jumping the gun here. You've got to go and be a parts boy at the Ford garage in Guildford and do your time. So I binned that idea. And I don't remember having a moment of clarity, but one day I woke up and thought, oh, car magazines would be good. So I wrote to every single magazine, not to be a journalist. I just said, please can I have a job. And I wrote to all of them and virtually nobody replied except car. And they um, sent a letter and said... Um, we haven't got anything, we put your name on file. So I thought, oh, that's that then. Carried on riding what year a bike. was this? 87. OK. And uh, three weeks later, I came home late one Friday night and there was a telegram on the doormat. Telegrams, 1987. And uh, it said, um, ring Margaret Mary Graham at Car Magazine as soon as possible too late on a Friday night so um, on Monday morning I was picking up a package from a perfume warehouse in um, Cambly I thought four O I don't know what job it is so I thought four O levels this I don't want to go into too much detail here <laughs> so I rang her up and I said hello it's Colin Goodwin uh, I got your telegram I can be there at two o'clock and virtually put the phone down screamed home got a suit my same cheap suit from being an estate agent, jumped on the motorbike, promptly got a job from Guildford to South End. This is pre-M25. Couldn't turn it down, needed the money. Shot to Southampton, South End, sorry. Record-breaking run to Kensington. Forgot about my boots. I had a suit on and boots. <laughs> no shoes. Oh, Christ. Uh, ran up to High Street Kensington, bought some shoes. Probably the last pair of shoes I bought, actually. Uh, ran back and had a job interview. Turned out what they wanted was someone to chase advertising copy. So you had, ironically, ring Bell and Colville every month and say what cars are you wanting to sell in your ad. 
or an advertising agency and say, what's your Ford ad? And you got the job? Yeah. Was that the same suit that you wore at Geneva about 15 years ago when the arse split on it and you'd walk around for an entire day? Yeah, I've only bought, I've only bought one suit. So that is I the same suit? Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same suit that I was wearing when I was... The starter motor on my Vauxhall Viva had gone and I was skint. So I was bump starting it on my own. Got it going, jumped in and tripped. My <laughs> foot got caught in the seat belt and I was going down the road on my ass after the car. <laughs> That's probably why the the um, trousers went to Geneva. <laughs> Do you remember that? You were, I mean, it was quite early in the day, you went, Monku, I think there's a hole in my suit. I remember saying, you said, go and check. It was a bit, a bit like the landing gear, not working on the plane. Go around the back and have a look. So I had a look and I said, it's a bit more than a hole, Cole. You're showing everyone your, your gizzards. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so you've got this job at Car Magazine. And also, we have to acknowledge the fact that in 87, Car Magazine was... At its peak. So it was a bit like writing letters to Man United saying, kind of come and do something, wasn't it? Because that was the A-team then. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know that at the time. Uh, and I started the job... So did you know who Satterite was when you went there? Yeah. You did, OK. Yeah, yeah. And not least because you wrote about bikes as well. Of course, yes. Um, yeah, I did. Um, but I didn't realise how important car was because I was really into car and driver and hot rod and car craft. Because while I was attempting to get O-levels, I fell in love with muscle cars because a couple of guys I went to the crammer with had muscle cars. And I, I didn't realise an engine could be so big in a car. Yeah. I saw this Buick Skylark do a burnout and I said, what on earth's in, in that? And they said, um, a 350. And I, what? 350cc, that's impre- <laughs> No, 350 cubic inches. What's that? 5.7 litres. That's in a car? <laughs> Have some of that. So that, I'd got into muscle cars and um, I forgot where we were. I just ask, so I was just asking you... Oh, yeah, you, Car Magazine. So, so Car Magazine's the A-team at this point. So how, how long did, did you chase advertising copy? At what point did you manage, did you get a chance to write something editorially? Because I presume what you were doing was, you know, being clever looking for any chance to write a first drive or to go on a lot or do anything. Well, I, um, I've been there about, I can't remember how, it was really friendly. There was about 45 people there doing car, supercar classics, yeah. truck and yeah. truck and driver. Yeah. And that's 45, everybody. So it was extremely friendly and there was no delineation between advertising and editorial. You all sat in there together? No, but we socialised together and yeah. that was the days where we went to the pub every day. Yeah. So you became friends with these people pretty quickly. I started in June, and within a month or so, uh, I remember coming into work and Richard Bremner was in reception with a suitcase. And I said, oh, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Italy. And I said, oh, um, that's nice. What are you going to do there? So I'm driving this new Ferrari called an F40. Right, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> How do I get this job? A <laughs> um, couple of months later, Steve Cropley came. We were in the basement in the Black Hole of Calcutta. Steve came downstairs and said, no one tells you bastards anything, so you're going to be the first to know I'm leaving. And uh, he was going to set up buying his magazine, buying cars. Anyway, I shot after him and said, look, since you're going, I need some advice. I, I want to be a journalist. I've got to be a journalist. How do I do it? And he said, um, he said, the best thing to do is start writing race reports, club reports of racing. And he said, I know a bloke at Autosport, I'll ring him for you. And um, 
this bloke called Tony Dodgins rang me and said, can you pop in and see me? So I did. This is probably November 87. I'd had a chat with him and I didn't hear anything until probably April 88. And the phone went on a Thursday and this guy, Tony, was on the phone and said, can you go to Cabell Park and cover a historic sports car club meeting? So I did. And then I really, then I, a week later, I picked up Autosport and it had my name in it, and that was it. I How did knew. that feel? Awesome. It's incredible, isn't it? I think everyone that's ever written for a living, the first time you see your name on a byline, doesn't matter if, it, if it's the tiniest sidebar, the sense of pride and achievement also, because most of us that do this have achieved nothing academically. So it's the first time in your life you've actually done something right, isn't it? Oh, it's the first time, and, and if I go and find something tomorrow, today, I still can't get my head around it. I love it all the time. Yeah. Uh, it more than uh, pays for the misery of having to do the writing. It <laughs> terrifies me after 30-something years. But, oh, yeah, the first time. I've still got it. You know, I would never... I couldn't believe it. So how long did you do that for? Uh, then the guys at uh, Carr uh, realised that that's what I wanted to do. And I would do my day job and then I'd go upstairs and say is there anything I can do to help and they would get me subbing little bits. It was hot metal in those days which was the last magazine in Britain to be hot metal. Explain hot metal to people that listen to this they won't have a clue. I'm not sure I do either. Uh, It was um, it's well before uh, digital publishing so as um, moulds that leads dripped into and like an old-fashioned printing press essentially. but it were yeah, it was really, really old fashioned, and uh, it, sub editing was very different. It, I won't bore people with the details, but it was a bit more complicated. Yeah, well, you weren't doing it on a screen, were you? So, no, no, no. And you had to write on a typewriter, which was a bit of a faff to put it. I can't even imagine it now. What did it sound like in the office? Noisy. I, can, I mean, oh dear, Steve Croppy can, can make a racket with two fingers on a modern Mac keyboard. What did it sound like? Well, cause that's why, because we have manual typewriters. You have to smash the keys. Yeah, you have to give them a wallop, especially if some keys had worn out. Do you think it helped not realising how um, how great so many of the people were that were writing for Car Magazine at the time to people that read Car Magazines? Because they were the A-list. That was the, that was the Man United, whatever year, that they were the best team ever. That, 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 was, that was the crew. As far as I'm concerned, it's never been bettered. It never will. It was probably... Um, Why did we choose to record this right underneath a bloody landing strip? <laughs> Sorry about the noise. That was a little plane taking off. There's going to be many more. Sorry, carry on. Cheaper, uh, quieter at Heathrow at the yeah, moment. It would be. <laughs> um, it was a good thing in a way that... Well, I, I hadn't... Uh, I've always loved reading. Um, and, yeah, I had the only two O-levels that I got without cheating or trying multiple attempts at were English. But it was, I, I think if I, thinking back on it, if I knew more, I would have been more daunted. Yeah. I just was so determined. I just thought, I have to do this. There's no, I mean, it's a cliche, you know, I had to succeed. But I really did have to. I no, thought, and, you've, and, you've, and the one thing that's always stood out in the time that I've known you, which is longer than I want to admit, is that when you decide you're going to do something, it's not half measures. You'll give it 120%, won't you? Well, yeah, I had to, I had to do it. And I didn't, I think when I started, I didn't realise how good they were. And if I had, it would have 
scared me. I was still would have done my best, but it, I think it really would have freaked me out if I'd realised how good they were. Well, as a as a reader, I can remember how quickly your name graduated from being something that we'd occasionally see on a little first drive to actually being much more front of house. So you you graduated quite quickly to actually being in the magazine more, didn't you? I think you're. It's a good way of putting it. it. It did feel, looking back on it, as a bit of an apprenticeship, and you weren't given. Same with the cars. I mean, you did not get straight in fast cars. No way. Um, not least because there weren't very many, but there's no way um, uh, that you were given big stuff to write until you'd prove yourself. Yeah. Actually, I was lucky because when I was in the basement, but I got on with everybody so well and my knowledge was good on cars. For some reason, they did let me drive stuff, which was totally against the rules. Um, before I was a journalist, the f I drove a 911 before I was uh, before I was writing about them, which was unusual. Yeah. But generally, there was a real... You had to earn everything, column inches and car keys. It's interesting you use the word lucky. I think everyone I've spoken to between the podcasts we've done, and, and I'm sure going forwards, anyone that's got anywhere has had an opening, a bit of luck. You just need a bit of luck, don't you? Someone, someone either leaves or something happens, and a little opening is presented to you and you have to grasp that opening don't you yeah you've got um you've you know you've got a luck to have got the job in the first place uh <clears throat> the 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 trick is to spot the opening and then don't give up mm. going into it that's the thing so by the sort of 92 93 you're a regular face in car magazine aren't you you're you're, you're definitely um you're writing quite big bits by now aren't you yeah, probably. I mean, the, for the first time I did a giant test was um, a big deal. When was that? 90? Probably around then, 91, 92? 91, maybe. Yeah. Uh, can't remember what the cars were. Um, did you have a massive beard by then or not? Yeah. Because for those of you that remember car from that era, Colin was the one that looked like a Yeti. Well, they all seemed to look like Yetis. Crop, had a massive beard as well. But um, but you'd see this very large bearded bloke. Um, and... and you quickly identified yourself as being a type of writer with a type of with a type of thinking. You were tangential, a little bit off the wall, and it fitted very well with Car Magazine, didn't it? You could you could have a slightly zany idea, and they seemed to back you. Uh, yeah. Well, the the great thing about those sort of off the wall things is they're considerably easier to write. Yeah. Um, I have never heard a hot hatch tell a joke, <laughs> or. <laughs> Or contribute anything to the writing process. But if you go and do something funny or interview somebody funny, then the story sort of writes itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, if you drive a kit car across the English Channel and it's made by Tim Dutton and Tim <laughs> Dutton's in it, you're well ahead of, the, you know, something's going to happen. I think at this point it's very important to say that I have massive respect, obviously, for my predecessors at Top Gear, but a lot of the modern Top Gear, when it became funny and it became adventure-based, definitely was an homage to car magazine from the 80s and 90s, wasn't it? You know, taking cars across the channel was something you were doing in the early 90s. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, it wasn't actually me, but um, a couple of the guys did the Edinburgh on a Monkey, yep. which was, as far as I'm concerned, the first time somebody bought some old bangers and 
did something with them. And did something with them. And then we did quite a few, did Pistons at Dawn and yeah. the Crap Car Cup. Yeah. Um, but it just, um, I like doing those silly things and, and they make the writing easier. What was your favourite one from the car era? The Dutton one was very memorable. That picture, there's just that picture of it in open water. I remember in the magazine just thinking, what is he doing? What is he doing? I, that was probably, uh, that was the most funny thing I did. The most satisfying thing I ever did was go to Le Mans as a mechanic with Marcos. You can, <laughs> I only have to say the word Marcos. Jem Marsh and the boys, yeah. Uh, that was the most rewarding thing I've ever done, work-wise, I think, yeah. yeah. What about Ferrari to the Sahara? That's probably, that, that, journalistically, from your car magazine news, might be the most memorable piece, I think. Because it was the one that we that most of us remember, I would have thought, because it was such a stunning image. Yeah, that was... Um, I didn't write it, but I went along on it. It was... Uh, I mean, nobody will forget that, who read magazines in the 90s. I won't forget it. It was just unbelievable. So your stock is quite high, and Autocar's going through a a very bullish phase. It's, um, it's got a new editor, Michael Harvey, and they're recruiting, and they want to they turn Autocar into... An absolutely unrivaled weekly proposition. Let me give you a ring. Uh, yeah, um, Mikey, Michael Harvey rang up and um, said, "Come and have a chat." And I knew what he m must be talking about. And I think um, I virtually made an instant decision. Uh, probably fifty percent flattered, because I, you know, I'm usually waiting to be sacked from things. So. <laughs> concept of somebody ringing up and saying we'd like you to come in rather than go out was um, uh, <coughs> tweak my ego up and the other half of it was I'll always be uh, and they didn't treat me like this but I'll always be the guy that started in the basement and came into it and if I want to prove to myself I can do this then I need to go out of the comfort zone and also car magazine was it had this massive reputation. If every every time we had a job vacancy, they'd be queuing around the block. Everyone would ring up. Um, so I th I thought, let's try um, throwing the cards in the air. And and there were some great guys. Frankel was there, Sutcliffe. Um, I thought it could be fun. Let's go. So off I went. And the money was good as well. <laughs> <laughs> was it good? What, the money? No, Autocar, forget the money. <laughs> so did, when you landed, did you think this is good? No, I thought after three weeks, first three weeks I thought I made a terrible mistake. Yeah. Harvey was fired. Yep. And this stroppy little shit on work experience <laughs> came in. So I'll, 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 I'll fess up now. So my first, I did work experience, it's 1996, I think. And I did work experience at Autocar magazine. And I, I walked in to the office this is this, these podcasts shouldn't be about me but i will have to say this one thing um and i and colin goodman had just started and, and i remember turning up on the first day to do work experience and i got there really early which anyone that knows me will realize is is rare and i got to the bus stop at about 7 a.m and watched everyone walk in i saw steve Cropley drive in in his in his uh, long-term seven series in those days there was no internet you'd never seen these people move they were inanimate objects that were in still photographs in magazines you never heard them speak. And I remember seeing Steve in this car and just being utterly starstruck. And, and then I, I walk into this office and Sutcliffe walks in 
Goodwin gets given a desk. I remember you being given this desk and you, you just looked like someone had just put turd on your top lip. You just thought, oh God, well, I could see in your face you were thinking, why am I doing this? And then Frankel walked in and I, I didn't know what to do really. I mean, I was just beside myself and and I and obviously because I was so excited, discharged myself terribly, just irritating people. But that's, that's and I'm still doing it now, but that's, that's fine. But I got to observe you joining this staff of this magazine and it was incredibly exciting. Looking back, it was ambitious. I, I, you know, fair credit to Michael Harvey. He had Steve Cropley and him at the very top of the tree. He had Russell Bulgin on a retainer writing a weekly column, who was without a doubt the best column writer in the country at that point for cars. He had Sutcliffe and Frankel and some, you know, some absolute talent on the road test desk. He had you. I think Frankel kind of, was. Um, oh, he got to motorsport then, but yeah. he's still freelance doing stuff. I think. Yeah, he was um, around. Anyway. He was around. Yeah, and he had you as the kind of zany ideas go out and create feature ideas I mean it's a strong team yeah, I didn't really think about it like that it was an enormous amount of fun that's for sure yeah and yeah within well Michael got fired he got, that, I, that didn't help I was either. only there for two weeks and after my first week he didn't come in and he was the only person I had any contact with to do anything well it's not as bad he gave me the job <laughs> I thought he's been fired for hiring me I can see the logic in that, but it's a, it's a bit of a poor start. Because they went, they went for the big redesign with the new logo. Remember what Cropper used to call it? <laughs> the flying arsehole. <laughs> the flying arsehole. Because it was, an, it was just, it, the O was supposed to be a tyre, wasn't it? But it didn't look unlike a date. <laughs> so there was, a, there, was a, there was a hasty redesign, wasn't there? Yeah. Because sales based, it, it went from being autocar was was um, unjoined from Autocar and Motor, which they'd been conjoined at some point in the late 80s. And the Autocar readership was quite beardy, quite sandly, quite adenoidal. And Michael tried to turn it into a... Understandably wanted to turn it into something better and more interesting and become a bit more lifestyle-y. So he hired a bloke with a beard. So he hired you and a few other people. And the sales... And I, I t- t- ambition in the right place. And actually, if you look back... It was an amazing magazine then. I've still got some copies. There was some fantastic writing, some fantastic photography. It looked and it read brilliantly, but but the target order car audience, the average reader, just thought it was a bit too up its own ass, didn't it? And they didn't buy it. The um... the target, the standard order car buyer, thought that redesign and, and the direction of the magazine wasn't quite what they wanted. Quite clearly, and they voted with their feet. They didn't buy it, mate. Yeah, well, it looked dreadful. Did, yeah, Horrible it, yellow. It was the yellow everywhere. Yeah. I thought the photography was amazing though. Full bleed photos suddenly and, and, and the writing was stunning. I'm trying to pay you a fucking compliment here, Goodwin. Say yes. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. But it, but it didn't... But it, but it just shows you sometimes editorially you can make something great but you can misjudge your audience. But didn't they... They changed it pretty soon after I got there, didn't they? Yeah. The yellowness. Yeah, that went pretty soon. Pretty soon, But But, it, yeah. but, it, but by then the damage had been done. Yeah. And then M- M- Michael didn't come in one one day um and it, and it all it basically seemed to be slightly problematic it was it was certainly um bewildering as the bloke I, i'd walked i thought i was walking into the best place in the world and then i was left confused thinking this is the place i want to work but it appears to be a bit of a shambles yeah yeah and i thought i might have made a mistake as well but actually you settled in yeah well within within no time at all they had a big meeting upstairs and uh, everyone was in the room and mel nichols another legend, yeah. uh, stood up and he said, um, and I wasn't, I was not in the best place at this moment because this, I really th- had thought I'd made a colossal mistake and Mel Nichols stood up and he said, um, I'm pleased to announce 
Patty Fuller is the new editor. And I remember turning around to Sutcliffe and just said, who the fuck's he? <laughs> uh, so I wasn't impressed. I thought it would be, you know, Sutcliffe or someone I'd yeah, heard of, yeah. not some sub I'd never heard of. Anyway, Fuller turned out to be, as you well know, uh, absolutely fantastic, huge fun, and opened, uh, really opened uh, all sorts of weird ideas and mega tolerant, uh, I'm sure we'll cover later, on uh, very tolerant of some unprofessional behaviour <laughs> across the board. Yeah, so Patrick became the editor, and they, and um, and you just started generating great ideas, and also having fifty one issues a year to fill meant there was so much more you could do because in 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 a, in a monthly magazine, you know, you you know, it's one idea an issue really, isn't it? With this with this beast, it just ate copy, didn't it? Oh, absolutely, and um, you know, if you've, uh, I remember. I found out I found this Irish bloke who wanted to beat the top speed for driving on two wheels, and I can't remember the car he had something like I think it was a twenty-four valve Carlton with nitrous oxide, and uh, so I got him to teach me how to drive on two wheels. Now on a monthly, it's difficult to get that sort of story in. You know, if, some, if Ferrari launched the Enzo, and you walk in there and say you know there's an Enzo launch and a new 911 Turbo and suddenly you want to get something in on a carton with this <laughs> Irish record breaker on laughing gas there's no space for it but weeklies just chomp through material and you could um it was the perfect place for me actually I didn't I didn't too stupid um to realize at the time that a weekly is ideal for for throwaway stuff I loved it. And I, so I joined in '98. I took them a couple. Well, it took me a couple of years to kick the door down. I remember, remember being taken into Patrick's office. No, it wasn't. It was Dorks's office, but with Patrick sitting there. And I just another job application had been rejected. And, and he said to me, Patrick, um, who occasionally listens to this, is an absolute legend. I owe him so much. And he, he looked at me and he just knew that I was going to be shattered by it. But I somehow bounced back. And he said, Look. As things stand, I just cannot send you as a representative auto car magazine on a vehicle on a new car launch. I just can't, Chris. And I went, fair enough. I walked out. <laughs> and then I remember one day I got a letter saying, was it a phone call? I think it was a phone call saying, all right, we'll give you a job. You're going to be a road test assistant. And I turned up. It was the second week in September in 1998. I finally found a purpose in life. I'd been totally listless. And, um, and within... A couple of weeks, I just felt very... It felt like my home, and I wanted to be there the whole time. I didn't want to leave, so I'd, I wouldn't leave. I'd stay till 9, 10 at night playing on computer games, or I'd just sit there and try and watch what people were doing and annoy them. And I definitely annoyed you, but there was a... there was a, I always remember when when it changed. I remember being at a Christmas party, a Christmas party somewhere, I think it was a Haymarket party or some other manufacturer, and it was December. So I'd been there two and a bit months, and you came up to me, put your arm around me, and you went, do you know what? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're bloody annoying, but you're all right. And I thought, bloody hell, I've cracked Goodwin. How long did it take? Two and a half months. Mm. It took a while. I mean, I would have absolutely blown all of your minds to start with. But, um, yeah, I went into Fuller when he said we're giving Chris a full-time job. <laughs> I went in and I said, I think he's really, really good, but one of us will have strangled the bastard <laughs> within the first week. I didn't have an off switch, mate. And also, can you understand how excited I was? Because you were all my absolute heroes. I think I could understand how excited you were. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just... Did you notice how noisy a top-fuel dragster is? <laughs> But I loved it, and I yeah I'll say thank you. Now they were, it was an amazing apprenticeship. I had so much fun, but but very quickly, it 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 dawned on us I think, and I hadn't been there that long that you myself and Sutcliffe, and uh, and Haynes, who Peter Haynes, who was there for a very short period of time, we got on well, and we had a similar outlook, and very and the office became, just became this place of joy, didn't it? And it's, I mean, I now talk to people who, who have that sort of weary oh god i've got to go to the office voice and i feel so privileged that i had a few years with you guys when i i actually used to you know i'd set my alarm to get up to get into the office because i knew that i'd walk in and and you'd immediately walk over and start talking about formula 5000 or some or you'd come in and, and quiz me on helmet designs of the 1970s f1 drivers and people would say where's your copy and you'd go this is much more important than talking about rolf stommelen yeah i don't really um we had an enormous amount of fun at car as well, but it was it was more old-fashioned is not quite the right word. We were making a lot of money, and um, we didn't have any restrictions on budget, and, uh, you know, we were a bit younger, and there was everybody went to the pub at lunchtime. It was a bit more old-fashioned fun. Um, and then the people I met there, I'm still, they're my best friends. Uh, but there was something about uh, that time at Autocar with you and Sutcliffe that I, I, my mental age dropped by about 15 years as soon as we all got together. I don't think it's ever recovered, really. It, but it was just something um, uh, silly about it, really. And, and uh, we, we will get Steve on together with, with Cole, but I'm, I think there's, you can never do too many of these podcasts, so why not do this one now and then we'll, we'll get Stephen in. I'm sure he might listen to this. But we... We used to go on these fantastic European trips as well. So much of it for me was you'd turn up on a, on a Monday and someone would give you the keys to a Peugeot 206 and you'd drive to Cadiz or Rome or something, meet you and Steve and Robbo, the great Peter Robinson. Um, I can't believe it was work. People were paying us. Oh, I absolutely. And it's sort of gone, really. And it didn't matter what the car was. Uh, it was just... Unbelievable driving across Europe. That's the thing I miss the most. Yeah. That is the best thing, and um, that's it for me. With I was road test editor of Car for a short period, but for me, it's I've never been really that into the metal. For me, cars are all about an experience, and it doesn't really matter what it is. It's an emotional thing, and it's being in the right place with the right people in a half decent car. 
and driving to Spain over a couple of days, staying in a hotel and just talking nut nonsense about cars. And also, it was a more professional way of doing it uh, because we spent so much time with the cars. You drive yeah. to Cadiz and back uh, and then spend two days talking about it. You've got the car. You, it's like a long-term test. Do you remember? I remember you coming back once and just presenting to me. Cause we, we used to do it so often. We'd, we, there'd been an unwritten competition about average speeds, wasn't there? And um, you, you drove back from somewhere, south of France, I think it was, in a Volvo S80. And you'd somehow averaged something... Madrid. Beneath, was it Madrid? And yeah. you'd averaged something beneath with a nine, I think, hadn't you? Or was it a high eight? Uh, the best one was... Um, I think you were there when we were in, doing a tyre test in Merivale. Oh, God, Merivale. In the south of France. Sutcliffe bet me that I couldn't get from Calais to Merivale in under six hours. Bearing in mind this is this is in a longer dock. It's a long way down. It's further, further than going to Nice. And, um, yeah, he's right, I didn't manage it. I missed it by five minutes because I couldn't find the hotel. Were you in the long-term Impreza? Was that the car yeah. you were in? I averaged 112 miles an hour, including <laughs> a lot of fuel stops. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I was, do you remember when Sport Auto magazine produced a um, an amazing story, which was Gare du Nord to Cannes? That was yeah. the standard. That if you if you were a French industrialist, that was the standard time that everyone used to remember, because you would leave your place in London, in in Paris in August, and then go down to South France for the for the summer break. And they did a story between a 740D BMW, an E38 version, because we didn't get out in the UK. It had a big tank, and it was the first time it was a very powerful diesel in the seven series, and against against the then new 996 GT3 with a 90 litre tank in it, because it had a a big old bladder it could go a long way and they basically raced each other with pixelated faces because they realised they were going to get a load of trouble from Le Flick and it turned out that the BMW wasn't far behind because it could go so far on on its on its range And but they did it in I mean the times were absurd I think it was like four and a half hours didn't do you know they? what last month I shared a car on a launch with the driver of the BMW oh brilliant Laurent Chevalier how far what, what did they average? I can't remember, but the French government tried to get the magazine that issue pulped. <laughs> he won in the BMW. So the BMW did win, did it? Yeah, because so. of the range. But it, but I remember sitting with you, and we were we were totally inspired by it. We had a copy of it in the office, and we just thought this was the coolest thing we'd ever seen. And then we we went to the pub. You won't remember this, maybe. And we tried to work out how we could beat it, and it ended up with. And it was an in-flight refueling system where you had envisaged <laughs> me leaning out of another car, refilling the BMWs. You went along with a Bowser, we, and we we said we sort of mentioned it to Fuller, and he went no, and went, and then we moved on. But we were convinced we could beat it. Car and driver did it with a, a four five six and an aeroplane as a spotter for <laughs> cops. I'd still like to do the really do well go and look at alex roy's apex film i mean that the the intricacies of that when he did the he broke the record uh west uh, east to west coast and um you know he had spotters he had yeah. he had sort of people coming in i mean it was unbelievably complicated the, the way that he had all his radar set up and he, he had a statistician come in and work out probabilities it's very clever bit too clever for us i think yeah probably so that so that they were they were fantastic times and i i yeah i want to sound like a boring old fart but I'm, I feel blessed to have worked on those magazines then. I don't think it's as much fun now. Uh, no, the internet's ruined it pretty yeah. much. Because I, I remember the first time we were given a, um, 
a, a video recorder because there was a sense that there was this thing called the internet coming on and we were we were all using it to look at jazz on dial up on the on the in the office but it hadn't dawned on us that we might actually want to do cars on the internet so we persuaded fuller to let's buy a video camera and it was when we went to drive i'm not sure you're involved in this one or not we all went to drive a Mercialago. I put the first time I drove a Pagani Zonda and it was with Robbo. Were you on that one or not? I'm no. not sure you were. Anyhow, we had the we had this camera and we had to present to Fuller what we'd recorded and I got I got half a skid, I think, of Sutcliffe coming around the corner in a Mercialago. And the rest of it was we we had a quite a juicy pasta dish the night before and it was us recording us doing massive chuffs in this Lamborghini as we drove towards pressure. I remember the, the suits going so we paid two grand for this camera and all we've got is you two giggling breaking wind I went yeah I'll, I'll take some video next time <laughs> um, so uh, let's just let's work out where we are here at this point there were some lovely moments when I realised some of the insides of the workings of your head because Fuller used to come over and say where's Colin and I'd say well he's not actually part of my department Colin's his own person they've got the road test department here which is just five four or five chairs known as the hormonal corner or the children and um, we were rarely there but we, we used to show up but you hadn't shown your face for a week and no one knew where you were it turned out that you were at the Ford press garage trying to fit a nitrous system to an XR2 explain that one uh, we had one of these um, challenges yeah uh, it was me versus Sutcliffe I can't remember what the money was, but we had to go off and get a car and modify it. Now, Sutcliffe is one of the most astonishing drivers, but does not know a spanner <laughs> from a seesaw. <laughs> Just hope. So he bought a Saab Turbo and didn't touch it. And I thought that's massively cheating because the brief is um, you've got to modify it. Now, remember I told you about the Irishman and the nitrous oxide? Yes. Well, for some reason, I had one of his nitrous bottles in the <laughs> office under my desk for years, which I've been itching for a use. I didn't want to waste it by just laughing with it, so I plumbed it into the Fiesta. It took a whole week of working in the, um, in the Ford press garage. No one knew where you were, and so we're having to cover for you. We'd say, oh, I think he's at home, personal stuff. And Fuller just didn't know where you were. I mean, you, so you bunked off for an entire week. And then you turned up to Millbrook with this thing. It was quite a nice XR2, actually, wasn't it? It wasn't too bad. I took all the interior out to get the weight out. It was terrible once I'd done that. And, we had to, and you had to drive it round the inner handling circuit, which is, at Millbrook, is one of the most <coughs> challenging pieces of, I would say, tarmac. It's not, because it's concrete, in the country, because it's raised. It's not designed for going fast on it. It's just designed for a vehicle to go round. It's probably about a mile and a bit long, if that. And it's, rather than being a conventional circuit where you have a, some asphalt that then reaches a border with some gravel and runoff, it's it's raised up. So when you drop off, there's a curb you can drop a wheel over, and rather than having shingle or small gravel, it's big stones. So if you, if you fall off, it totally destroys the car immediately. It, it stops you dead, but the car will be wrecked. And so these two turn up, and we've told Millbrook that we are doing an evaluation test between two cars actually we're just filming them having a series of wacky races around the facility and so starts one of the funniest days of my life I, I was I was just the work experience kid following them around trying to trying to work no no I had a job but I was still the I was the lackey so we start off on the handling circuit I remember you trying to uh, for the lap time around the inner handling circuit to apply the nitrous and you came out of the bottom corner 
And I remember you, you could see, you could just sense that there, here we are, I'm going to show what this thing can do. And what you hadn't, well, tell us how you connected it and how you, how you administered it. I can't really remember, but it was beyond crude. I think there was just a pipe going into it. There was a pipe oh, going... Oh, through the washer. Through the washer motor. Through the washer motor, which, which made a weird sound. So you came out the last corner and the car, we heard this... <laughs> and then a load of shit came out of the exhaust and it didn't go any faster. It just basically, a load of stuff came out of the exhaust. So you lost the first challenge, tragically. He was so much quicker, and yeah. then we, and it was quite competitive. You're thinking, how can I beat the bastard? So then, then, then everything we were, was Sutcliffe was hyper competitive. Of course, it was. Um, even even walking to even in the office, everything was competitive. But if we, I remember then there was a loop. We somehow managed to persuade Milbert we were going to take these two cars onto the loose to a sort of semi off road course. And then I remember then the the, the boss man coming on the radio going, "Can you confirm what's car why you need to use that surface?" And I, I was there going. Well, we just need to test what their abilities on on light rough, and then I sort of went, oh, sorry, you know, uh, Gale Force Eight, whatever Blackadder does, and then put it down and lied, and then the security man came out to check up on us, and Sutcliffe came through the end of the inverted commas stage on the lock stops in this Saab, and the bloke went utterly, utterly mental and just said, "What the fuck is going on here? This is this is a serious car testing venue." You can't just mess about, and we thought, well, we've been doing that for for most of our lives, actually, whilst we've been here. But um, so that carried on, and I I think he won, didn't he? Or did the Saab blow up? Mine blew up. Yours blew up, did yeah. it? Yeah. Talking of Millbrook, what about the time that you decided to go around the bowl in a Bentley? Uh, yeah, um, it was a Continental T, lo- lovely short wheelbase. Explain how the the high speed bowl works. Oh, okay. <clears throat> It's it um it's a two mile bowl, yeah. banked heavily banked, and uh, in the in split into about five lanes. And the top lane at the very top, we were always told if you do a hundred miles an hour, the car will go around on its own. Take your hands off. Yeah. Take your hands off. And um, I think Steve and I were a bit bored. We had we'd done it. We were going around this Continental T, and um, I said, let's see if we can. Uh, we, let's see if we can do a lap on the with the cruise control on. So we put the cruise control on at a hundred, and I and I said, let's see if we can let's go and sit in the back while it does it on its own. And there was some German bloke doing an emissions test in a Opel Corsa, next, and we were going round, uh, sitting in the back of this Bentley at a ton, with no one in the front. Of course, being British, within about half a lap, the the uh, cruise control conked, <laughs> and we didn't. We hadn't really planned any any uh, course of action if this happened. So both of us were trying to get in the front, <laughs> fighting our way to the steering wheel. But we um, we got away with it. But it was a bit of a frantic day because earlier in the day, Sutcliffe had nearly killed some girl in a fiesta <laughs> on the public road. And then when we'd done the Bentley. Uh, cruise control stunt Sutcliffe had one of the rare instants where his car control skills left him <laughs> he was in a Jeep Wrangler and we were pulling out onto a busy road just before the M1 on our way back and um, it was really it was I think raining and rush hour and dark and Steve pulled off, pulled out 
in the Wrangler and there was just enough room for me to go as well and I floored this bent in it went up like a speedboat and Steve it, the Wrangler just turned around and did a 180 <laughs> and I could just see over the top of the bonnet this Wrangler coming towards me <laughs> we just stopped dead nose to nose just about inch apart and all this traffic building up have that had just watched a jeep pull out and rev, rev, 180 in, into the front of this Bentley anyway um, okay, we're going to take a break there now. That's a long first half, but some oh, some cracking stories. I feel wistful already. So um, go and have a jammy Dodgers last time. Go and get a wagon wheel. Go and buy a wagon wheel. Have a cup of char. And some toilet rolls. Yeah, well, they're too valuable now, aren't they? And um, we'll get some air into the back of this bloody A8 because I really am struggling for oxygen now. But, um, yeah, back for part two soon. Collecting cars, the safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Welcome back to this episode of the Collecting Cars podcast with me, Chris Harris, and Colin Goodwin, who doesn't have a tag on Twitter because he's not on Twitter, which tells you what he thinks about social media. Um, so we, we've gassed about the old times and we can't crap on about that for too long, but um, eventually uh, we dispersed in separate directions. Um, I went and did my thing. You are now um, uh, the, the car reporter or head of cars for The Mirror, aren't you? Daily Mirror. Yeah, and um, The Express... Daily Express and the Daily Star and the, their Sundays as well. Oh, yeah. So lots of newspapers. Have you become a pinko as well? I'm everything. Oh, I'm yeah. a chameleon. <laughs> um, so where are we at right now? These are interesting times. So we're sitting in the back of an A8L. This is the week that the coronavirus has really kicked off, hence the reason we've just put on our hand sanitizer and we are six inches away from well, each other. because I would have put that on anyway, yeah, sitting in the back of the car with you. Yeah, it's fair enough. Um, so... What's this going to do to our industry, mate? It's, it, I mean, it's devastating, isn't it? I, absolutely. I, uh, it's impossible to know where to start. They were in trouble anyway uh, with EU emissions targets, having to make EVs that, generally speaking, uh, in, virtually impossible to make a profit on. They were already struggling. And now this is just devastating. Uh, I, I think also... Um, uh, who's going to take out le- uh, a new lease on a car at the moment? You know, every, whoever you are, you're going to be worried about your job prospects for at least the rest of the year. It's going to go whether you're um, self-employed, you've got a pub, a restaurant, if you're an airline pilot, everybody's going to be cacking it. And I don't see anybody walking into an Audi dealership or a BMW dealership and committing to paying five six seven eight hundred quid a month what if what if your three-year lease has just come up on the other one do you i mean there are going to be some people that have to change their cars but but the volumes are going to be very very reduced aren't they yeah i mean i i suppose uh yeah if it's just a case of handing it back and then starting again and there'll be some amazing deals i would imagine uh then you'll just have to keep doing it but You'll be fighting tooth and nail to get your monthly uh, outgoings down. 
my view on on EVs, EVs as personal transportation are, the moment they don't f- fit into your life, then they cease to be any use. I, I, I that's my view of them. I, I think the motor car is the ultimate expression of personal freedom. You wake up and you can go wherever you want to go, as long as you've got some money in your bank account and your car works. You you can go anywhere in Europe or anywhere around the world actually because you can find a fuel station, fill up and keep going. But the moment you have to plan ahead and really think about how you're going to get that vehicle to its destination, they become much less appealing. Well, imagine if we'd have had 120 years of electric cars and someone invented petrol and said, you'd pour some of this in, takes three minutes, and then you can go um, 600 miles without stopping. And incidentally, have you heard what the engine sounds like? <laughs> I never thought of it. You always have a way of contorting these things. Yeah, you're quite right. Um, EVs, there's my professional... There's the professional side of it. You've got to earn a living writing about cars. Uh, so you can judge them uh, as a car and as an EV against other EVs. But that's not my passion. Uh, I like... Uh, sailing boats doesn't mean I want to buy a narrow boat as far as I'm concerned EVs different thing and that's why writing for newspapers for consumers um, is much easier because I can view it as uh, advising people what I think of the car and whether it's sensible or not for them to buy it I can't write about that sort of car for Evo for example because I just don't think it should be in there what about Tesla Model 3? You've probably had some experience of one. What do you think of it? Uh, I did have a massive dice with an A35. That's probably the most fun, I, only fun I've ever had in an EV. Because they do go, don't they? It was, um, yeah, it was on the road from Millbrook where we nearly wrote the Bentley and the Jeep off. <laughs> and I got behind this, I was on the way to the SMMT test day, which um, is always good, always gets the old testosterone up anyway. And, uh, yeah, I got behind this A35, and it absolutely trounced it. Uh, yeah, that was that was really amazing. So come back to the SMMT, do you remember you in the... It was a 129, wasn't it? An R129 Mercedes SL. And there's a jump, isn't there? Ah, uh, that's not me. Was that not you? No. Who was that? Oh. I thought it was you. Oh, no, you're it right, was you're you. right. Yeah, I got the bar to come up. So so at Millbrook, there's a, there's a thing called the Hill Route, which is um is supposed to be... It's a scenic route that allows people to, to replicate kind of A forward slash B road driving. And it's not really supposed to be driven at any speed. But over the years, we used to go faster and faster around it. And there was a jump. And you've probably seen that jump used in films and press shots. James Bond film. Yeah, that's where the DBS was rolled in the in Casino Royale as well. So it's been used a lot, that area. But the jump was always magnificent. If you came off this sort of sweeping right downhill right-hander with enough speed and you had enough balls and you got it right out to the barrier you could straighten the car up and go over this jump at significant speed in an i remember in an evo 5 mitsubishi i could get three four feet off the ground anyhow at the smmt day you're supposed to go out and do a lap in a a car experience it and bring it back what happened to you in the sl well when it went off the ground the um pop-up roll bar popped up and in those days, that was the only car that had it. It was an amazing piece of technology, yeah. wasn't it? it could, they, they boasted that it could sense in a millisecond whether you were about to have a massive shunt or not. And this huge bar would come up behind you. But you, how did you get it back down again? 
I think you have to ask somebody from Mercedes <laughs> to do it. So you you came back having persuaded people you hadn't acted irresponsibly and you had a massive bar behind you that just said, I've acted irresponsibly. Fortunately, at the launch, another journalist actually rolled one and had one pop up for real. So my, uh, my crime didn't look quite so bad. <laughs> you sheepishly driving back in and saying, I've done nothing wrong here. I think it's a fuse. <laughs> so, yeah, the... The the EV thing I'm I'm still perplexed by, and I just I feel very sorry for car companies because they're being legislated out of business, really, aren't they? That 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 they're not charities; they have to make money. They don't have to make absurd, obscene profits. But as things stand, as you say, it was already bad enough. But now, I mean, they're shutting down production. It's, it's a wasteland. Yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, we're not ready for EVs. We haven't got the infrastructure. The range isn't an issue. Generally speaking, the range is good enough for most people, even on a long journey. The problem is the infrastructure. And with the economic catastrophe that we're staring at, with you know, 330 billion to help businesses, what's that gonna do for a charging network? And uh, you know, it's not, conven- it's not gonna be a convenient way to get about. Yeah, well, let's think of something more upbeat. <laughs> Formula One. I love talking about Formula One because Colin is a massive fan of those heroes from the 70s and also of Can-Am and all that sort of stuff. And you've always taken a dim view of modern Formula One. When was the last time you watched Formula One race? Ah, well, um, I've discovered... Last year, I discovered the Netflix. Oh, and, Gunter uh, Steiner. <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> that has absolutely tra- transformed the whole thing for me. It's the first time I've really enjoyed Formula One. But when in... a fly on the wall documentary about the sport's more interesting than the racing itself, don't you have a problem? Uh, not really, because I've been not into it for so long yeah. that I feel that uh, it's, you know, I've just rediscovered a long-lost friend and uh, I've watched the second one and I binge-watched it in like more or less one and a half afternoons. And the thing is that what they do that has been missing is I now understand the personalities yeah. of the drivers. And now it means something. And they show, they only show the footage. Two hours of a boring F1 race is the waste of your life. Um, you could be looking on YouTube for Mark Donahue videos and stuff. But when they just go, this is the bloke we've been talking about. This is why these three laps are drastically important because he's going to lose his seat. You're riveted and you care about the people and suddenly what they've got personalities Yeah. because we've never been allowed to see it. Yeah, you're quite right. It has changed everything. Um, it's, a, it's a genius move from, from an organisation that, that looked like it had no understanding of modern media and suddenly they've really Well, they didn't uh, uh, look at the difference between the first one and the second one. Yeah. First one has got Gunter Steiner in it and some other, you know, Williams and people who've got need any publicity. This year's one, Ferrari's in it, Mercedes is in it, everybody's in it because they've also realised it's not just the numbers; it's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but motors, motorsport was was actually one of the things, and I first got to know you through was your passion for seventy sports car racing and early eighty sports car racing as well. And we would sit there. Uh, and watch, we'd find VHSs. I remember watching In Car 956 with you for the first time, and I'd never even heard of this. 
and you'd stuck it on. I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And there was always that moment where Derek Bell's got the camera in at the Nürburgring, and, yeah. and Jack, and he's talking about it being the fourth fastest lap of the Nürburgring ever. And Jackie, Jackie X goes past like a scalded cat, and Derek Bell calmly says, "Of course, Jackie didn't have a camera in the car." I've always, no, Derek's fantastic guy. Uh, I've never had the balls to ask him how much the camera weighed. <laughs> but there was something about that era, and Can Am especially for me, Can Am was and remains the coolest racing of all time I, I, it, it, it captures the imagination like nothing else the idea of a totally unlimited series with those drivers and those circuits I mean I had a go in one once and it, it's just unbelievable that's probably why I can't really be bothered with Veyrons and P1s and um, what was it an M8 what which was the customer one I think it was a D, D. or an F an F, an F. It doesn't matter. It was 8.2 litres. It was probably something like 800 kilograms and 735 horsepower, I think. Just unbelievable. Like being hit in the back of the head by A380 or something. Unbelievable. I, um, I had the chance to drive a 917. It was a 917.10. But it had, it looked like a 30, so it had the Sunoco bodywork. And I drove it at Brands Hatch, and it was wet. Haynes was there, Peter Haynes was there working for RM Auctions. I remember thinking, this is, and it was December, this, this is not the time to drive this. And I let it go once in third gear. Once I got it, I, I thought I had a bit of traction, and it just, everything spooled up. And then I went back, having done that, and watched some footage on YouTube of the people driving them. What they thought they were doing, I do not know. Unbelievable. Um... I, you meet people who've got a collection of supercars, road-going supercars. I always assume they must have an M8 and a Lola T70 and a 908 as well. Because why would you have all this unusable stuff? <laughs> Surely you've also got the amazing yeah. um, stuff why, as well. Why do you need... Yes. Why would you not have a 956 or something like that as well? So tell us about the modern hypercars and supercars. What are your feelings on those? Uh, same as yours, same as uh, I listened to your podcast with Jethro Bovington. Uh, all my mates say the same thing. I'm sure Frankel says the same thing. Pointless. Uh, I, you, know, it's, you can't talk about it without throwing dozens of cliches at it, but it is sadly more fun to um, drive a Suzuki Swift flat out than um, something at 20%. Yeah. It's just not satisfying. And the other problem with it is, um, I'm not a particularly good driver, but when I drive things like 720Ss and extremely fast cars, it makes me feel like I've completely forgotten how to drive because you feel that you want to drive it really fast, but you're, you're going so quick on the road you just feel you're not getting the best, not the best out of it, getting any percentage of the performance out of it. And you tend to think that, well, maybe I'm just not fast enough. But you're going so bloody quickly, like on the mountain roads above Nice. It used to be so much fun in, you know, in 355s and stuff, because you felt like you were really getting on top of the car. But you don't feel intimidated by the modern supercars. You're just not using them, and it just, it just. And if you just try and go faster and faster, you're just naturally running out of road, and that's not the same thing. 
as um, pushing it. What about modern motorcycles? For some reason, this, exactly the same argument applies, but they're more usable. I had a Panigale V4 f uh, for a day. That's as long as I dared have it. And um, round, I was going around Dorking and place, came out of a roundabout onto a dual carriageway and you've just got it leant over and you squirt it for about 10 seconds and that'll last you the next 10 minutes and nobody knows what you've done. If you did that in an Aventador or something, people would be phoning the police, filming you. It was just another bloke on a motorbike with it leant over and it made a lot of noise and went quickly and nobody bats an eyelid, but it was just mind-blowing. That must be what heroin is, is like. You, I just It's the most amazing thing, machine, I have ever had control of or semi-control of. I thought it was just one. I really want one and it's against all my... Because I, you know, I should have a... Triumph Bonneville or something. Because you got into historic bike racing for a while and, and us, your friends, got very worried. I remember you turning up to Frankel's 40th. Yeah. Really limping. Yeah. As in you weren't well at all. And, and a lot of this, we were all muttering going, and I think I got shoved forward. Monkey, you need to tell him he's got to stop doing this. Oh, I'm not telling him. I think I had. I think that was the last was meeting it? I did. What did you buy? What, what bike uh, was it? It was a 750... Triumph, three-cylinder, but it was um, a bit Goodwoody, like like a Goodwood E-type. Yeah, wouldn't have been recognised in 1969. <laughs> it went to 9,000 RPM, for example. <laughs> um, huge fun. I'd always really wanted to do it, and um, uh, did a lot of car racing. Wasn't new from the first lap. I wasn't going to be particularly good. Um, so let's try something else to be not good at. But I, I really love bike racing. And, and did you fall off that a few times? Yeah, you've got to. I'm afraid it's true. Another cliche. If you don't fall off, you're not going quick enough. Bloody hell, Goodwin. And well, sometimes, you know, you get caught. You know, someone knocks you off or something. But generally speaking, if you're not, unless you're winning all the time, that's fine. You don't need to go any quicker. But you fall off. Yeah, so you so you went from doing that. In fact, that's the, the 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 plane came in fairly soon after that, didn't it? Yeah, well, I um, it's a tough. Uh, by this time, I uh, I remarried, and uh, it's a tough thing to watch somebody bike racing. Yeah. And um, I broke my collarbone at Silverstone, and the next day we were going on a Nile cruise, and uh, I hit the deck. <laughs> It was that bloody chicane they put in for British Superbikes. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. doing about 10 miles an hour. I think I was fourth, third or fourth, doing quite well. Fell off the thing, hit the deck. I was, oh, shit, I'd bust, I'd bust something, winded to hell. So I rolled off the track. I didn't want them to red flag it. I rolled off the track, and uh, I thought, I'd better, I'll sit here for a bit until I get my breath back. Walked back to the pits, and she, she said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm good. And... Uh, and then we went on holiday the next day. So I didn't dare go to A&E or anything. And uh, going in, you know, being driven in minibuses in Egypt, carrying suitcases. God. And it was broken. And some ribs as well. <laughs> then I got a cold. And if you've ever broken ribs, do not get a cold. So every time you cough or sneeze, it's agony. Anyway, I, she woke up in the middle of the night and I was crying. <laughs> 
what, what's the problem? I, don't know. <laughs> I think I might have bust something the other day. I was crying. Oh, fair play to you. Yeah, I um, I, I have to say I was jealous when when you started doing that. I thought it just it was another example of you of you wanting to do something and just not doing it half measures, like the El Camino. We haven't talked about the El Camino because you wrote a story about going to buy an El Camino in Autocar magazine and you shipped it back to Europe, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd always wanted a proper muscle car because when I was a teenager, 17, 18, that's what my mates had, GTOs and Trans Ams. And I wanted one, but I wanted a proper one. I didn't want just an American car. So I bought a 454 SS El Camino and yeah, bought it in uh, Pasadena and drove it to New Jersey, shipped it over to the UK. And um, yeah, they're funny things, muscle cars, but I sort of, I really like lightweight lands and things like that these days, but muscle cars are just different because they've just, they've got so much emotional appeal. The, the whole language around them and the advertisements at the time and the names of the colours, and it was just, everything uh, was perfect. The fact that there were probably, I think, roughly 30,000 of them made the year mine was made, but mine had the LS6, LS5 454 in it, and I think they made something like 8,000. With the LS6, they made 12 and two manuals <laughs> out of 30,000 cars. You know, it was a solid lifter, high compression 454, but that's the beauty of them, because... Looking at the two, I mean, a 27RS is easy to fake. Well, these are really easy to fake. But you just find these things. And it will be not difficult with the new Corvette to come up with a combo that... I mean, that engine cost as much... That engine option was as much as the car. <laughs> so someone very committed. So you decided to rebuild the engine, and suddenly we were all basically conscripted into being your your helpers and anyone that was going on an american launch had to come back with parts in the suitcase wouldn't they for this bloody car yeah and um and i remember at that point i was homeless as i often was and you very kindly said i could come and doss on your floor for a bit so i was there or your sofa for a few weeks i remember this has been sort of 2099 or somewhere around then maybe a bit later around and um and you'd said go and get a towel out or something from a chest of drawers, and I opened up a chest of drawers and it was just full of valves, or just just engine bits in general. So the the entire your entire flat basically was just to rebuild an, <laughs> this muscle car, and a, and you squeezed around it so you could find somewhere to sleep. Yeah, I was single then. <laughs> it was a cool thing though, and I always remember, and this is a story for another day, going on Sutcliffe Stagdo <laughs> to uh, Le Mans. That is a story for another day. And um, and we had, a, ironic enough, we were in an Audi A8 long wheelbase, just like the one we're sitting in now, yeah. but it had the W12 engine in it. Yeah. And we got, and your car, you'd just finished the engine rebuild, and there was a sense that that it might not be, well, it was an ambitious first trip, let's just say, to take it straight <coughs> to Le Mans, and it was a really hot summer. To, that would have been 2001, yeah. So we, so we, we drove, yeah. Yeah. and we got to the periphery, because they hadn't built that new road down. And the traffic just stopped, didn't it? And I was I was in the El Camino. No, I wasn't. No, you you were in the, the A8. I was in the A8 at that point. You were in the El Camino. We swapped. You let me drive it the rest of it. And um, and I was, and I remember thinking, 
oh god that's going to shit itself it's going to overheat he's got all sorts of problems and as i thought that i saw wisps of steam coming out of the bloody bonnet of the brand new press a8 which promptly shit itself i mean what amazing wasn't it that w12 engine was had no it didn't have any cooling really that didn't have the cooling it needed and it and it dumped itself whereas the el camino idled in sort of 35 degrees ambient for an afternoon like most manufacturers, they made the huge mistake of not um, buying a small block or a big block to put in their cars. I've been saying this for 32 years. What's the solution? Buy a big block. Small block. Sorry, small block. Sorry, small block. According to Paul Horrell, who has got the largest brain in automotive journalism, that has the, the small block has the highest out BHP per kilogram of almost any engine. Does it? Because it's yeah. just a good piece of engineering. It's brilliant. 1954. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, well, there's other stories to tell, but uh, about that trip. But I do, I do. Your story about waking up in your El Camino. And we won't talk about the condition you're in, but you waking up and feeling the body shaking a bit, and then seeing two people sitting in the back of the flatbed as you woke up with a picnic table, <laughs> having a chairs and tables in the back in the back of your El Camino as you woke up at Le Mans. Yeah, having breakfast. Did you congratulate them or not, or did you no, tell I them drove to go? off? <laughs> Um, and of course, the the other thing, I mean, I don't want to be downbeat about the industry. The car industry is going to struggle a bit, but we touched on it. The car magazines, and I think you make a very valid, very valid point about this. One of the reasons why I think car magazines struggle a bit is that we used to sell a dream, really, didn't we? We used to sell... I always felt that people should read a car magazine, be it Evo or Autocar or Car Magazine, and they should be just immensely jealous of what you get up to not in a bad way but they should be thinking i want to do that i wish i could be doing that but we've lost that slightly haven't we uh yeah very much so um it's why most of us uh got into it um i think we've got over fixated by the metal and uh, the numbers around the metal uh we're not helped by um manufacturers of high performance cars uh, launching them in on racetracks in the Middle East. It's not, you're not going to get the photograph of a young Italian kid looking in the rear window of a 288 GTO. Again, it. I think we made a mistake of thinking that the, that was old fashioned and the Mel Nichols driving across Europe in a, La, in a Lamborghini or a Daytona, that that was old fashioned and we had a better way of doing it. Actually, we missed the point there. That is what it's about. Yeah. And what worries me now is that there are people, you know, city boys who've done well, bought some nice cars. They're having more fun. Yeah. They don't need to read Evo or car or autocar or any of us. Um, they're doing it themselves. Because they're out there themselves. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, and what about, and we'll touch on it, the influencer thing. How do you view that? I mean, I've, I've, I've got... My, my standard view is I don't like all of it, but I, I think they're bringing in a young audience, which is massively important. And also, they're undeniably successful. If someone's being successful, you can gripe about it all you want. They're doing something you're not doing. Um, well, firstly, on a work-wise, they are not nicking any of my money, as far <laughs> as I can tell. <laughs> and pretty soon there won't be anyone anyway. Um, but, you know, what have we been sitting in this Audi talking about for an hour? You know, the great the great times we had at Autocar Group, you know, driving three cars across Europe for several days, not having to pinch and scrape, and just the camaraderie and the good fun. They're not 
I look at the influence and uh, influencers and I think, I don't want to do what you're doing. I wouldn't swap with you. You're never going to have as much fun as I've had with my mates. Maybe for them it, is, it, it probably is, I'm just being old. But I don't, um, you know, it's not connected with what I do. It's a different sort of segment. How, you know, I couldn't be jealous about it. They don't take any bread from my mouth. I don't want to do what they do. They might not want to have done what I've been doing for the last few years, but I still get a massive kick from seeing my na name in print. And uh, I, don't, I don't do, yeah, there's the odd video and things I end up on, but my job is writing in paper, and that's what gives me a buzz. Do you remember the Autocar 250? Uh, yes. <clears throat> that's one. We should save that when we talk to Sutcliffe. That was, that was one of your great video performances. I almost didn't save that. <laughs> As the, as the 747 keeps coming into view as the car rotates. Um, right, that's been a fantastic chinwag. Thank you very much, Colin, for coming along. So just to remind you, go on to collectingcars.com and have a look at the auctions at the moment. There are some fantastic bits and bobs up for sale at the moment. It really is gathering momentum. Scooter ear at the moment. Maybe, maybe that will have been sold by the time this goes out. But there's some top metal oh, and plastic as well. But for the moment, thank you very much, Colin, for coming on this show. And um, everyone, stay well. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.